0: Alright church, you guys ready? So we're studying uh, the book of Revelation on, we just resumed, we've already gone through the first three chapters on, uh, of the book of Revelation on Wednesday night, and we kind of had an intro to Revelation chapter 4, and today I'm going to talk to you about worship, the power of worship. In fact, we're probably going to talk about worship for a little bit here at the front end of a new year. And I'm going to read to you the fourth chapter of Revelation because it's a picture of worship. So we're all, we are creatures created to worship our Creator. Did you know that? We are creatures created to worship Our creator. We all worship. Whether you realize it or not, you worship. Worship is not, you don't just worship when you think you're worshiping, when you go to church, yes, you worship. But if you don't know that you worship all the time, and whether you believe in what you worship or whether you believe in nothing, you worship. The question is not if we worship, the question is always, what or who do we worship? From worship flows the issue of life and death. So from worship flow life and death. That is a fact. We don't always connect the dots that way, but that is the truth. From worship flow life or death. This is why the psalmist declared in Psalm thirty-three, twelve: "'Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord.'" the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. Within that declared blessing is the implication of a people who worship the Lord. And when we worship God, we are blessed. And when we do not, we are not. Now, here in America, we define blessings in a lot of different ways. We think we're blessed because we live in a certain kind of house, drive a certain kind of car, wear a certain kind of clothes, have a certain kind of bank account. And we say, man, I'm blessed. And no doubt, there's blessing associated with all that. But Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his very soul? So we need to be careful that we don't allow the world to define blessing for us. We need to let God and his scripture define blessing for us. There's nothing wrong with having all of those things. The Bible is full of people who are rich and have great possession. But it's also full of warnings, like the warning Jesus gave. It's easier for a rich man to go through, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we slice that all kinds of ways, and we say, well, it doesn't really mean what it really says. No, it actually means what it really says. Jesus is painting a picture to help us understand that riches ultimately don't define our blessing. Hebrews, I mean Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The people that got their heads cut off two weeks ago in Nigeria, he has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The people that are being persecuted, that's why we pray for the persecuted church every week. Our brothers and sisters are being persecuted. They're living in poverty. They're living in lack. They're living in want. They're being persecuted. They're under distress. They're under pressure. They're even losing their own lives. And yet the scripture is true that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you might say, well, yeah, that's in the heavenly places. That's when we get up there. No, that's not what that means. That doesn't mean the blessing is when we get up there. That means the blessing is ours eternally. It's ours right now. But it's not defined the way the world defines it. It's defined the way God defines it. You might say, well, what does all of this have to do with worship? Well, it has to do with worship because here's the promise. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. With that declaration of blessing, there is this implication of A people who worship their Lord. And when we worship, we are blessed. And when we do not worship, we are not blessed. Our failure to worship the living God leads to the systematic failure of all things. Our failure to worship the living God leads to the systematic failure of all things. And ultimately, it leads to death. This is why... I say, from worship flows life or death. Therefore, worship is not only important, worship is vital for life. So let me read this picture to you, presented to us in Revelation chapter 4. Now we're not going to go in and talk about this in detail today, we're going to do that on Wednesday nights. But I want you to see this i'm make i'm reading this to you to to help us understand something a greater picture here so john is is uh, writing this the apostle john revelation chapter 4 verse 1 therefore i therefore the prisoner i'm sorry i should help i should get to the right book it would help me right After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in Set in heaven and one set on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. And the third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and with them. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Did you catch that? They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Father, we ask that you would take this gospel, take your word, and use it to mold us and to shape us. Use it to transform us, to conform us to the very image of the Son of God, that we would be a people in this earth that are salty and bright lights shining to dispel the darkness, that we would give witness to Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel, the only hope this world has, the only thing that has the power to break through the hardness of men's hearts and bring them to salvation. Father, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So right there, after we read that chapter, we really just want to dive in, or at least I do, and talk about everything that's in there, but I'm not going to do that. What I want you to see, though, is this is a picture of worship. So this is a picture of worship in heaven. The church exists for God's glory. You realize that. I mean, the same John who wrote this revelation of Jesus Christ is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John begins with him writing, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on and he says, all things that were made, he created them, and there's not anything created that he did not create. So everything around us came through Jesus Christ. And guess how Jesus Christ brought everything around us into existence? He did what? He spoke it. Now, this is the power of us speaking. Sometimes people ask me, you're not a Catholic church, why do you say the creed? That's kind of weird. I've actually had people tell me that. Well, I'll tell you why we say the creed. We speak the creed together as a body for the same reason the Bible tells us that everything exists because God spoke it. Because when we, the church, speak the creed in unison together, guess what we're doing? We're doing exactly what I told these children they do by living their lives and coming to church and coming up here and sitting around the pastor and listening to him tell a story. That's worship. They may not understand that, But that's worship. You might not understand that, but that's worship. And when we speak the creed together, we are declaring to heaven, to powers and to principalities, the manifold wisdom of God. And whether you realize it or not, heaven knows there's power in that declaration of our words, that declaration of the truth. Worship is power. And the church needs to get back to understanding the power of worship. The church exists for the glory of God. Worship glorifies God. Therefore, worship is at the heart of all the church is. Worship is never an option. It is always a reality and it is always a necessity. Worship on earth as it is in heaven When John is called to come up here into the heavenly vision, it's not insignificant that the first thing he encounters in heaven is worship. Worship defines the atmosphere of heaven. Therefore, worship is to define the atmosphere of heaven. Of earth. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he no doubt had many things in mind, but I promise you there was none more significant than worship. When Jesus spoke those words to his disciples, Jesus understood the atmosphere of heaven is worship. And the prayer, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is a prayer for that worship to, to fill this earth. And that is exactly what God mandated at creation when he said to Adam and Eve, go forth, take dominion, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with what? Not just people, but fill it with what? The image of God. Because what of God's creation is the only thing that was created in God's image? Well, that is mankind. And God commanded man to go forth and fill the earth. To fill it with his image. Throughout the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book. We see judgment come to the false and idolatrous worship of this world system. All the while, worship in spirit and truth that the Father is seeking is filling heaven and earth until they become one. Until heaven and earth become one. You realize that's what's going to happen. I mean, we're going to spend eternity where? On earth or in heaven? Yes, both. Because guess what? Heaven and earth will become one. We have this false narrative that plays in our mind that we're going to be somewhere floating around on the clouds and, well, we're not really sure what's going to happen to the earth, but we're going to be in heaven. No. Listen, heaven and earth become one. The worship of God is going to fill creation. It's going to fill everything until heaven and earth become one. This is what Jesus declared to the Samaritan woman when he encountered her at the well. John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The Samaritans thought that worship was to take place on Mount Gerizim. The Jews knew that worship was to take place in Jerusalem at the temple The woman says, You know, us Samaritans, we worship on the mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? Who's wrong? Can you tell me, prophet? He says, Listen, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation was talking to her right then and there. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. True worship can only emanate from spirit. It doesn't come from our flesh. It comes from our... Your flesh doesn't want to worship. But the Bible says we're to be filled with the Spirit of God, which means we're to live our lives controlled by the Spirit of God, not giving place to the flesh. In fact, Paul writes, if you walk according to the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is a picture of us living our lives... Under the control of the spirit of God. Worship in spirit and in truth. The worship of heaven is the worship God commands on earth. It is worship that is in spirit and in truth. God commands our worship. That does not mean God demands our worship. God commands our worship. The world mistakenly thinks that God demands that we worship him like some insecure tyrant who wants his people to acknowledge him. That's, that's not who God is. That's a false image. God does not demand our worship. God commands our worship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, And given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Unredeemed man will not be able to stand in the presence of God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess before Jesus Christ, the Lord, God does not have to demand our worship. His holy, righteous, glorious presence commands our worship by the virtue of who He is. I promise you, I don't care if you are the most stout atheist on planet earth. The moment you enter into the presence of God, you will not be able to do anything but bow before him. The word worship in the Hebrew is a word that literally means to bow before. Now God wants us to do more than just physically bow before him. He wants our hearts to be bowed before him. This is, the, this is what true worship is. True worship is not just me doing something physically. True worship has to come from my heart. That's why Jesus said to the woman, these are the worshipers that the Father seeks, those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. God calls his people to worship. Israel was called out of Egypt as an assembled people to worship God. Israelites no doubt could and did worship God personally while they were slaves in Egypt. But they were called out as an assembly or as the church. So the same word Jesus uses when he calls us the church is the same word that The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses throughout the Old Testament when it speaks of the assembly or the congregation of Israel. They were called out of Egypt as an assembly or as the church, and they were called out to worship God. Exodus 3.18 Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice, aka worship the Lord. Or, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Or worship God. It was about worship. Worship is central to Israel's call out of Egypt. Where Israel is not called out to worship generally, but worship specifically as the assembled people of God, as, God's, as the assembly of God's people. This is how Israel was called out, as the assembly of God's people. God loves us individually, but God always identifies with us corporately. Do you hear me? The word church is a word that speaks of a corporate body. God loves us individually, but God always identifies with us corporately. We are each individual members, but we are known to God and loved by God through one body that is the body of Jesus Christ. God's not going to love you in your own body. You understand what I mean? It's not because I get to heaven and God says, Man, you were, you were all that and more, Jeff. Man, you are the best pastor, you are the best this, the best that. Well, you guys know that's not true, right? It's not. It's not because we do everything right. It's not because we work so hard and we earn our place with God. We're never going to stand before God on our own and be accepted in our body. We are lost. We are hopeless in ourselves. The only hope I have of being accepted in the Father is to become part of the body of Christ. I am only accepted in the Father in Jesus, not in myself. And when I lose myself, or as the Bible says, when I'm crucified with Christ, that's how you lose yourself. You are crucified with Christ. And when you're crucified with Christ and God raises you up in newness of life in Jesus... He knows you now because you are part of the body of His Son. He accepts you now because you are now accepted in His presence in the body of His Son. He loves us individually, but He only identifies with us corporately in the body of His Son. It's the same in worship. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. A body of people who worship Him in spirit and in truth... The call to worship for God's people is the call to assemble together as one body in spirit and truth to worship God. The call to worship is a call to love. The first and most important responsibility and privilege is worship. You might say, no, you got that wrong, Pastor Jeff. Jesus said the, the greatest commandment is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What do you think that is? That is worship. To worship God is to love God. And to love God is to worship God. Ultimately, we worship what we love and we love what we worship. And if we truly love God, guess what we're going to do? We're going to worship. Because that's what God commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength is to worship him. Worship devoid of love is not worship in spirit and truth. It may be compliance or it may be acknowledgement, but it is not true worship. True worship issues from a new heart driven by the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is why worship is an act of faith and love that speaks of our enduring hope. I want you to hear this. Worship... The act of worship is an act of faith and love that speaks to our enduring hope. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. To worship God is to declare God's love and God's unfailing hope that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. This is why worship is an act of faith and love that speaks to our enduring hope. That hope is in Jesus that hope has been poured out into our hearts as God has poured His love into us. That's why tribulation doesn't define our blessing. Tribulation is just another thing that God takes and uses and glorifies. And ultimately, as Paul writes in Romans, works together for our good. So even in tribulation... There is something that God is producing in us. Ultimately, it produces hope. And our hope does not disappoint in Jesus. The call to worship is the call to assemble. The call to worship is a call to the many to assemble as the one. We see the trumpet call to worship in the book of Exodus. When Moses and the children of Israel are called to assemble at the foot of the mountain. Exodus nineteen thirteen. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mountain your translation might say come near to the mountain but in the Hebrew that word literally means to come up to ascend to go up when John is called to come up here in Revelation chapter 4 into the heavenly vision it's not unreasonable to think that when John heard the voice like a trumpet he was reminded of Moses and the children of Israel hearing the trumpet sound calling them to come up to the mountain to assemble before God when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, he was unwavering that it was, not, that it was the whole assembly that must come out. There was no option of a partial exodus. In his negotiation with Moses, the Pharaoh says, well, how about if I let the men go, but I keep the women and children here? Nope, it's not going to work that way. God says it's all period. End of, end of negotiation. They're all coming out end of subject. There was no partial exodus. God had called the entire assembly of Israel out of Egypt to do what? To worship him. Worship in the Bible is always associated with the assembly of God's people. Worship can be powerful personally, but it is most powerful corporately. What can be accomplished through the corporate power of worship can never be accomplished through the personal power of worship. There is power when you profess the creed yourself, personally, by yourself. But I'm telling you what, there is an infinite power when the people of God assemble together and with one voice proclaim, I believe, and then you tell heaven exactly what you believe and who you believe in. There is power in that beyond what we can imagine here in this earth, in our physical bodies, with our finite minds. Worship, corporate worship, is powerful, more powerful than we could ever imagine. That's not to say that personal worship is not powerful or not important, because it most certainly is. In fact, we could never have corporate worship without personal worship. Worship is personal, but personal worship can never accomplish what corporate worship can. Therefore, personal worship can never replace corporate worship. It can only complement it. Do you get that? People, say, people tell me, because I'm a pastor, right? And I talk to people all the time. And I, I quite frequently ask people, I always ask people, do you have a church? If you don't have a church, you're welcome to come visit us at our church. You know, we'd love to, to have you come, you know, and sometimes people will say, well, you know, I don't have a church pastor. I just get in my boat, and I just go out to Lake Granger and go crappie fishing. That's my church. No, sorry. That's not your church. That's not the church. That's not scriptural. That's, that's completely unacceptable to God. If you want to go fishing, that's fine, but don't call it church. And don't call it worship, because it's not church, and it's not worship. It's not. Jesus is very specific in how he defines the church and how he defines worship. And it's never by yourself on a boat or anywhere else. It is in a corporate setting. And God commands his people to assemble. Why? We just read it in Ephesians chapter 3. Because the church is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And we do it through our assembly. We do it through our voices. We do it in every act of worship we commit when we come together. We are declaring something to the heavenlies. This is so important, church. You, you can't let this just go. You've got to grasp this. This is the hope of our nation. This is your hope. This is the hope of our children. Look at these babies here. What kind of world are they going to live in when we're dead and gone and they're navigating this, this globe we call the earth What kind of world are they going to live in? I'm going to tell you, it's going to be dependent upon us. It's going to be dependent upon us declaring to the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God. It's going to be dependent upon us understanding the power of worship and forsaking the things that distract us and take us away from that. It is going to be dependent on us making sure that we are declaring powerfully the wisdom of God. It will. That is the way God created the world. Read your Bible. This is how God has worked throughout human history. This is why Jesus, we read this Wednesday night, this is why Jesus said to the Pharisees, he accused them of spilling the righteous blood, all the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah. He accused them, he said, the blood you have shed, They could have gone, well, we we weren't alive when Abel was killed. Or we weren't alive when Zachariah was killed. But Jesus specifically points to them and says, you. Because who did it? Their fathers did it. In other words, they are the product of their fathers. And their fathers didn't worship God didn't obey the prophets, Jesus said, you rebelled against God and you killed the prophets. And now judgment is coming to you because you did this. And then right after that, they they murdered Jesus. Don't ever think that what you do or what you don't do does not matter because what you do matters and what you do not do also matters. Jesus defined our worship when he defined the church. Matthew sixteen eighteen. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Now, if I'd have read that in context so that you understand, Jesus is not saying Peter is the rock. It's the rock of Revelation. Who do men say that I am? Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, uh, man has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock, there's a word play there. Peter's the little rock chipped off the big rock. Jesus is the rock. It's the rock of revelation of who Jesus is. This is what the church is built upon. The revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is our Savior. This is our Messiah. Jesus' first recorded use of the word church is here in Matthew 16. He uses it again in Matthew 18, and then he uses it again at the end of the canon of Scripture in the first three chapters of Revelation when he's writing to the seven churches of Asia, and he calls them to the church of Pergamus, to the church of Ephesus. The church is an assembly, specifically an assembly of called out ones. We are a calling together of the citizens of the heavenly city. That means the church itself is a city. We just studied this in fourth grade geography, remember Ephraim? We studied about city-states. We studied about the Greek city-states. And this is where this word comes from, the church, the ecclesia. It's the assembly. This picture is that when a threat comes to a city or something happens, the leaders of that city, that city assembles together and they come up with a plan. It's a political word. In the Greek world, this is what this word meant. And and in the Greek world, there, there were city-states. They were cities, but they acted like nations. They were like states. They were like nations. Interesting, that's how Jesus describes the church. And the Bible depicts the church as a city, as a nation, as a people. We're called a family, we're called a flock, we're called a body, we're called all kinds of things. But you notice all of those depictions of the church are are corporate. A flock is corporate, a family is corporate, a body is corporate, a city is corporate, a nation is corporate. In Scripture, we see the church depicted as a city. We see John being called up into the heavenly realms in Revelation. And in, verse, in chapter 21, verses 2 and 8, he sees the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem descending down from heaven. This holy Jerusalem, this city is called the bride, the lamb's wife. This is the church. This is who we are. We are the bride. We are the lamb's wife. We are the church. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the city that the Bible talks about. This is why we're commanded to not forsake assembling together. This holy Jerusalem, this, this bride, this wife, this church, this assembly of all of God's people. We are commanded to not forsake assembling together. There's power in our assembling. And we are, by virtue of who Jesus declared us to be, the assembly of God's people. And by virtue of who Jesus has declared us to be, there is power in our assembly. We cannot be an assembly if we do not assemble. That, makes, that seems kind of logical, right? We can't be powerful If we do not worship, and our worship is most powerful as we faithfully assemble together to worship the Lord our God in spirit and in truth. Worship is a powerful catalyst for change. Worship is a powerful ritual. We don't like the word ritual. Caleb gave me a book for Christmas called Human Rights, R-I-T-E-S. It was a very eye-opening book. and and you realize that our life is full of ritual. The way you brush your teeth every night or every morning is a ritual. The way you get up and take a shower is a ritual. The way you put on your clothes is a ritual. The way you take off your clothes is a ritual. The way you sit down and eat is a ritual. Everything we do is a ritual, and we don't realize it. But our life is made up of a series of rituals. Well, guess what? Worship is a ritual, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's, it's the most powerful ritual we probably all, we all participate in together each week. It's a ritual that God commands His assembled people to perform regularly. Our worship as an assembled people each week is powerful. It's not powerful because we can see the power or feel the power or hear the power. Though we can see each other, hear each other, and feel each other. And there is power in that. But do you understand what I'm saying? We come to church and people leave. And, you know, back in the day when we were one of those really wild, charismatic, fall on the floor, stay there for about two hours or stay plastered to the wall, and people would say, man, I felt the Spirit well, not today. The Spirit was strong today. Then maybe sometimes people would say, well, you know, I just didn't feel the spirit. I used to be the worship leader here, and I had a big worship team, and I had one lady one time tell me, um, I'm never going to get up on the platform unless I feel the spirit of God. And, and I'm like, what? She said, yeah, if I don't feel the spirit of God, I'm not getting up on that platform. I said, listen, you better get up on that platform whether you feel the spirit of God or not because we, we're here to lead this congregation in worship. See, the power of God is not based on whether you feel it or not you really believe that? Do you believe that there's power and the electricity that's flowing into this building? Can you feel the electricity in this building? You better not, because if you do, you're probably going to be dead. Just because you can't feel it doesn't mean the power's not there. Listen, the power of God in our worship is not based on what we feel, what we see, what we perceive. The power of God in our worship is inherent. It's here because God is here. It's it's powerful because we're doing what God commands us to do. We're doing what God has called us to do. Our worship is powerful because it's worship. And it's worship to the true and living God. It's not powerful based on some physical, tangible feeling. That's great. I love to get that. I love to feel that. But never define God's power based on how you feel, what you see, what you don't see. The power of our worship is not based on what we feel, but on who God is. It's not powerful emotions or feelings, but a powerful God who calls his people by name, personally and corporately, that empowers us to worship. Our name is church. That's our corporate name, church. We are A calling together, an assembly of called out ones. It is more powerful than you know when the church worships together. It is more destructive than you know when it does not. Because we are tempted to place ourselves at the center of the story and walk by sight and not by faith, we tend to define and measure things based on what we can immediately see and feel and perceive. But that is not how God designed his creation. The other day I was at Koinonia before class and I was making, no, it was before the Christmas banquet, I was making coffee to pour in the carafes. And the coffee maker we have next door is really slow, especially when you put it on bold brew, it takes forever. And I filled it up and I was standing there just watching and Marley was there doing something and Marley goes, you know, a watch pot never boils. I said, yeah, I know. It's funny, as I stood there and waited, it took forever. But when I go do something else, it seems like, oh, oh, the coffee's ready. Well, this is the way God creates the world. This This is the reality of creation. A watch pot never boils. Trees don't mature overnight, neither do children. Rome wasn't built in a day, it took centuries. Your life and my life will make more difference in unseen ways than in ways we will ever be able to see with our eyes. The same is true of our worship. We measure crowd size, program impact, and all the other matrices men tell us to use. But God has shown us that there is power in the unseen and in the unperceived. He commands our worship. He commands our faithful obedience. And He promises that as we walk by faith and not by sight, He is working in powerful ways. I said worship is a catalyst. It's a catalyst that provokes change and transformation. This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us consider, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10, let us consider one another provoking one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of son, and even more as we see the day approaching. He commands our worship. He commands that we worship, and that worship is corporate. It is the assembled saints of God. Do you have eyes of faith to see what God is doing? The trees are growing. More are being planted and watered every day. The city is being built. And with every new day, God is working and making new. Do you have eyes of faith to see it? I pray that you do. I pray you do, for God is faithfully working all things together for good to those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. He is doing that for his glory. For your good and for his glory. We have that hope and that promise in Jesus Christ. That is why we worship. To make known and to declare these things, these truths. To make known and to declare even to powers and principalities the manifold wisdom of God. Amen. And one of the most significant ways that we worship is coming to the table each week. Yes, it's a ritual. But it's not a dead ritual, as some would say. Oh, it is just the opposite. It is living and powerful. It's a reminder of who we worship and why we worship. It gives us the grace to call ourselves the church. It reminds us of the power that comes with that calling. So as you are a member of the church, the church, the Catholic church, little c, universal, you don't have to be a member of this specific local body, but if you count yourself a member of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus and you count yourself a member of his body, I don't care where you live or what label you wear, if you count yourself part of his body, you're welcome to this table. So church, worship him, glorify him, declare his wisdom to powers and principalities, come to the table, welcome to Jesus. I want you to realize that the very simple act of us Taking communion together each week is a powerful, powerful expression to powers and principalities of what God has done. It reminds them, every time we remember the body and the blood of Jesus, they are reminded that they are defeated. Every time we proclaim his victory, they are reminded of their defeat. Death is the last enemy that will be put underfoot one day. It awaits that moment when God will ultimately put it underfoot and death will be no more. We all await that day. And that day is sure because Jesus has already conquered. Let's stand in our charge today. I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I already read one of the verses, but I want to read this to you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make known and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you which is your glory. Church, I want you to focus on the phrase to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Jesus Christ. All things are according to his eternal purpose. This is what our assembled worship does. It makes known The manifold wisdom of God. This is why Jesus said, Where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there. It's not the size of the assembly, but the fact of the assembly. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he is there in power and glory, working and changing and transforming all things according to his will and according to his good purpose. That is our hope. That's his promise. Trust that. Believe that. Live that. And know that he is faithful. Amen. And know that your life matters and your worship matters. And it gives witness in power and glory to our God. Let's sing our thanks.